morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis, and I wrote it down on my paper, so I wouldn't remember. I wouldn't forget who uh, who I am. Uh, Karen apologized to me when she came off the stage. We've known each other for 35 years, and um, the the truth is, at any point in time, I can forget any of your names. So I certainly am not holding that against Karen for sure. I'm glad to be here with you today at Women in the Word. I'm part of the teaching team, and um, it doesn't get any better than this, than having an awesome group of ladies to study the scriptures with. Um, The only thing I can think of that is better is that we're all together studying the scriptures and eating chocolate. That might be uh, just a tiny, tiny bit to it. Uh, That's it. That's the only thing I can think of. You should have a verse and outline sheet with you uh, and turn your Bibles to... Luke chapter 4, because that's where we're going to be this morning. You know, some of you know I have a son who's a pilot in the Air Force, and for a while he was stationed in England. And while he was stationed there, he had uh, the great privilege of being involved in uh, an event, to fly an event that commemorated June 6, 1944, the invasion of Normandy, or what the Allied forces called in World War II D-Day. It was called D-Day, if you know your history, because that was the actual day, June the 6th, that the Normandy invasion um, began. If you've seen Tom Hanks' movie, Saving Private Ryan, you've seen that graphic description of what that invasion on the beach of Normandy was really like on June 6th. History books called D-Day one of the most significant and strategic invasions of all times. And it was a major reason, that day was the major reason that the entire world did not succumb to the evil of Hitler. Because those troops marched on to Germany and put an end to the evil that Hitler had prevailed over Europe for months and years. D-Day was a turning point in the world's fight against evil. And this morning as we look over Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at another D-Day. And as far as the battle against evil is concerned, honestly, this may be the real D-Day. Because it is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as the Messiah. It's one of the most significant beginnings in the history of mankind. It's the day he steps onto the public stage and begins to say, I am the Messiah. You know, there's a term called shock and awe. We heard it during the Gulf War, I believe, when uh, President Bush used it about our invasion of Iraq. He called it shock and awe. And with that, it's not just a catchy phrase. What it really is, shock and awe, is an actual military doctrine. They teach it at military schools. And it's the doctrine of the use of overwhelming dominant power and spectacular displays of superiority. Jesus' mission as the Messiah begins with this step into the wilderness we're going to look at. And we're going to see some shock and awe in the opening months of his ministry as he reveals to the world who he really is. So let's read together in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, 
It is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor. For it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know, we all know the background here from Lynn's lesson last week. Jesus had just left the Jordan River where he had been baptized by John the Baptist. And this was truly his commissioning at the beginning of his ministry. And then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is the day. This is the day that the fight that's been raging in the heavenlies between the forces of God and the forces of evil takes a different twist Because Satan and Jesus are going to be one-on-one for the first time in the wilderness. Amy Foster shared with me last week that on her trip to Israel a few years ago that she was shocked by the wilderness when they got there. Because it was surrounded by this lush greenery, gardens and olive groves and trees. And then all of a sudden you come to the wilderness and it looks like Mars. Douglas, I think we have a picture. Look at that. Look at that. It looks like Mars. And on the back side of that um, uh, is, a, is uh, the garden of the Olive Garden, I believe. But um, anyways, you can see right there in the middle, it is nothing but rocks and rock formations. There's not a blade of grass anywhere. There's no shade. There's no opportunity to uh, grab sustenance off an olive branch. I don't know that there's any water in there. It doesn't look like there might be. There's certainly no protection from the elements. If you were going to make a stand against an enemy, I don't think this is the place you'd want to make it. But this is where we see Jesus. Thanks, Douglas. You can take it down. This is where we see Jesus in this barren, difficult environment. He spends 40 days here, and Satan brings on every assault that he possibly can. Now, we see in the scriptures these three temptations, but probably Jesus was with him for the um, Satan was with Jesus for the entire 40 days and tempted him in different ways over and over again. What Satan wants to do here is stop what Jesus' mission is. He doesn't want a Messiah in the world. He doesn't want the opportunity for us to have a Savior that takes on the sin of all of our lives. And Satan's mission is to stop it. He wants to offer Jesus in these three temptations the opportunity to put his dependence on God aside. Put it aside. You don't really need God, Jesus. You can do things your own way. So in the first one, we see him give Jesus the opportunity to turn stones into bread. You can do this yourself. You can feed yourself. You can gratify yourself. In the second one, he offers him the opportunity to take his authority right then and right there from Satan and be king of the world. He offers him the opportunity to exalt himself. And in the third one, he offers him the opportunity to glorify himself. You know, if you'll throw yourself off this temple, I know that God's angels will save you. And then the whole world will know that you're the son of God. You can have all the glory right now. 
this is a temptation this whole all three of these together are a temptation to have instant gratification it's what we all struggle with today isn't it instant gratification none of us want to wait I don't want to wait for a phone call in fact I've got my phone in my pocket if it rings right now I don't have to wait I could just answer it couldn't I I don't have to wait on anything in the instant gratification world we have Jesus is going to have to wait for his full authority of his messianic birthright if he goes to the cross Second, Excuse me, Satan is offering him the opportunity to bypass the cross, offering him his messianic birthright without the shame and suffering of going to the cross. He's tempting Jesus to do it his own way, to give up God's plan. Jesus, that's not really a very good plan for you. Look what you can have now. In all three instances, Jesus responds with God's word. And that shows that he's not leaving God's plan. And he's not leaving his dependence on God. Jesus never falters in his pursuit of God's plan for the world. He never falters in his dedication and dependence on God. He's going to wait to be the savior of the world because he's going to do it God's way. The reason Satan fails here is he ignores the truth that God's plans can never be thwarted and he loses this D-Day battle right here that launches Jesus into his public ministry as the Messiah. Look on your verse sheet at Psalm 33:10. This is what Jesus forgot. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever and the purposes of his heart through all generations. So Jesus walks out of the wilderness and into the world to publicly reveal who he is. He is the Messiah. And we're going to see some shock and awe. We're going to see some dominant power and some spectacular displays of superiority. As in the next few minutes, we look at him teach and heal and cast out demons and even forgive sins. And he does all of this not to gratify himself or glorify himself. He does it all to bring a lost world to the truth that the real Messiah has come. Let's read verses 16 through 21 together. Now Jesus, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Chuck Swindoll wrote a commentary on the book of Luke, and in it he says, When Jesus leaves the wilderness and goes to his home city of Nazareth, it's like going from the frying pan into the fire. And really the reason why he says that is because when he goes into his uh, hometown of Nazareth, uh, he's, he's been there before, but he's just been the guy next door. He was uh, just an unassuming carpenter. He was uh, the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph. But now... He walks into the synagogue and he sits down and he begins to reveal what his real calling is in life as he steps into that synagogue. 
You know, as Jesus arrives in Galilee, the religious leaders have had centuries of traditions and expectations for the rabbis to follow. And they've had even more expectations of who and what their Messiah would be. For hundreds of years, they've had in their minds a picture of what they thought the Messiah was going to look like. And believe me, Jesus was not on that short list that they were thinking of who might be the Messiah. And so as Jesus reads the words of Isaiah the prophet here in verses 18 and 19, he's surrounded by people that know what these words mean. This is a messianic prophecy that they've studied and looked at and waited expectantly for for years. So when he follows up Isaiah's prophecy and with the simple statement, today it is fulfilled in your hearing, He's unequivocally, without any doubt, to anyone around him saying, I am the Messiah. He's looking all his friends and his neighbors, the people that he's grown up with, in the eye and saying, Hey, it's me, folks. I'm him. This is happening. It's real. And I'm here to tell you about it. But the people have a different reaction than what we might expect, don't they? Let's look at verses 22 through 30 in chapter 4. All spoke well of him. And were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to him, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and on his way. Now the people loved his teaching. They spoke well um, of him. But they're not buying the Messiah part. They're just not buying the Messiah part. They're kind of looking at each other saying, Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he kind of grow up down the street? Isn't he that little boy that ran around in front of our house for years? They're hanging on his every word. They probably do know that there's some unusual stories about Jesus' birth from Joseph and Mary. You know how things go around a small town. They would have talked and said... Yeah, did you hear that story? So they know that. They've even heard news of miracles. He's been to Capernaum before he comes here to Nazareth. He's already done some miracles. They've heard all that. So they're excited uh, to hear his teaching. But they can't get past their expectations of what and who a Messiah would be. And it wasn't a hometown boy. It wasn't the guy next door. No matter what he says and does. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he's not surprised. It's not a surprise to him. And he answers them um, by reminding them of two different instances in Israel's past when God's grace and mercy fell not on a Jewish person, 
but on a Gentile. The first one was with Elijah and the Gentile widow of Zarephath during a famine. The second one he tell, reminds them of was of Elisha and the Gentile Syrian leopard who's healed instead of the many lepers that might have been part of the nation of Israel. And these are two great examples that they all know of, of God's grace and blessing. But he points out that they're given to others besides the nation of Israel. Now Luke was writing the book of Luke to a Gentile audience, so they would have liked this. They would have thought, yeah, God does bless Gentiles, but Jesus' audience is a Jewish audience, and they're not thinking so kindly about examples from Jesus about God blessing the Gentiles. They realize, they connect the dots here as he's talking, and they realize what he might be saying is that God may bring salvation to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews That's not their expectation. That's not what they want. And so how do they respond? They jump up. They're an angry mob. They quickly grab Jesus and drag him out to the top of the hill where the town is built. And they intend to throw him off and kill him. The great news is is that the timing of Jesus' death is not left into the hands of an angry Jewish mob. It's all God's sovereign plan. Jesus has come in God's timing and his death is going to be in God's timing also. Now it's, so Jesus slips away. They don't have the opportunity to throw him off the cliff. It's hard to tell whether from the text here, whether he escaped by a miracle or supernatural intervention or whether there was just so much confusion among the crowd that he was able to slip away. Maybe there was a little shock and awe as he managed to disappear. What we need to realize this morning is that Jesus began his public ministry right here in his hometown of Nazareth, rejected by an angry Jewish mob and dragged off to his death. And he's going to end his public ministry the exact same way. Rejected by an angry mob and dragged off to the cross. His rejection by the nation of Israel begins as soon as his ministry begins. And it does not end even after his death. Now, last week, Lynn talked about the ministry of John the Baptist, and she characterized uh, the ministry of John the Baptist uh, with the word hope. I think her outline said hope in the wilderness, and I loved it. It was a great word for John the Baptist. If we were going to use one word to characterize the inaugural days of Jesus' ministry, that word would be authority. Authority As God's chosen Messiah, obviously the nation of Israel realizes that when the Messiah comes, he's going to have some authority. But again, their expectations get in the way here because they expect that he's going to have the authority of an earthly king. Uh, a kind that comes from governments or wealth or position. But Jesus begins his public ministry as the son of man, not with earthly authority but by displaying the divine authority that is rightly his as the Son of Man. Uh, the scriptures testify to that. Look at Matthew 28:18 on your verse sheet. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And John 3:35, right below it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now in Jesus' day... The authority of any ruler was validated by his signet ring. Every ruler had a special ring that he kept with him at all times that he wore on his finger. There was always a seal of wax on an official document. And so he validated his authority by the seal of his signet ring. 
Jesus doesn't have a signet ring, but he has divine authority. And we're going to see him validate that authority with the shock and awe of divine superiority um, and standing displays of power as he teaches and performs miracles and forgives sin. That's how Jesus is going to validate his divine authority. Let's look at some of that together. Look at chapter 4, verse 31 with me. He went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. So Jesus has escaped the angry mobs here in Nazareth, and he's gone back to Capernaum, where he had been before, um, and he begins to teach in the synagogue. And the language that Luke uses here implies that he didn't just teach once in the synagogue, that he had probably been there teaching several different times, week after week, in the synagogue. And what the people are amazed at here is what Luke calls authority. And the Greek word that Luke uses here for authority actually means the literal meaning of it is free choice. And it's used to describe the sovereign authoritative decision of a king or a judge. And that's how Luke uh, describes what the people are talking about here. Now, I think the reason that the people are so taken with Jesus' teaching with authority is pretty stunning. Um, You know, when the usual scribes and rabbis stood up week after week to teach from the scrolls, a a rabbi, a teacher of the law would stand up and they would teach from the scrolls and they would read it. And then they would cite tradition or they would use the insight of another rabbi that they had heard teach to describe and give um, teaching on what the word of God was. Um, That was what the people in the synagogue were used to. But think about what happened when Jesus stood up to teach in the synagogue, to teach the Word of God. Jesus didn't use traditions when he taught the Word of God. He didn't cite what the other rabbis were saying about this particular passage of the Word of God. He simply taught the Word of God with authority because he was the Word of God. He was the incarnate Word of God. John tells us in his gospel that he was the Word made flesh. Can you imagine how riveting it must have been to have Jesus stand up and teach the Word of God? If he were to walk in here today and say, Shelly, sit down, can you imagine how astounded we would be? Of course that he walked in here, but certainly that um, he could teach the Word of God the way none of the rest of us could. He could teach it as only the author of a book can teach on the subject that he has researched and written about. And the people had never heard anything like it. Because he's the Messiah, Jesus teaches the word of God with a shock and awe that should have left no doubt in anyone's mind. This is God's chosen one. Now in the rest of this chapter and in Luke chapter 5, what we see are some uh, great healings. We don't have time to look at all of them. We're just going to look at a few of them. But because Jesus is traveling around the countryside and healing wherever he goes, healing um, from spiritual issues with demons and healing physically, the crowds flock to him. And you see that throughout these opening days of his ministry. Wherever he goes, there's hundreds and hundreds of people that follow him. Look at verses 38 and 39 with me where Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. 
Jesus shows all these crowds of people that are following him around uh, that his power and authority is not only immediate, but it's complete. When he heals someone, it's not something that is going to take weeks or months to do. It's going to be immediate because his power is complete. Simon's mother-in-law is restored here, and she gets up and acts like she's never been sick a day in her life. Now, I don't know this, but I can imagine if you'd been healed by Jesus you'd feel 10 years younger. I mean, I think that you have to get up and think, I have never had a better day in my entire life than today. Um, Jesus shows his followers here uh, that his authority is immediate and complete. Shock and awe. Who could deny who he is when they see the authority he has to heal? In chapter 5, verse 13, flip over to chapter 5 with me. We're going to move on to chapter 5. Jesus touches a leper and heals him. This is a great example of um, who Jesus is. Now, it's a small feat for Jesus to heal a leper. But it's huge for the leper because the lepers in Jesus' day were considered ceremonially unclean. They were totally cut off from any community at all. They were particularly cut off from the religious community because a rabbi would not touch them because it would make them unclean and unable to go into the temple. It would have been outrageous for a rabbi to touch a a leper. But Jesus not only touches him, but he's instantaneously healed of a disease that makes him ceremonially unclean. And the shock and the awe of his miracles spread around the countryside in the way that should have not left a question in anyone's mind who this man was. Look at verse 15 with me in chapter 5. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. It doesn't say they came because they knew who he was. It says they came to be healed and to hear him. I think perhaps the most significant healing that we see in these couple of chapters of Luke, Luke records beginning in verse 20. And this should have been in my mind the healing that totally cast any doubt out of anyone's ever mind that they'd had. There are huge crowds. um, Look down to verse 20. We'll read it in a minute. There are huge crowds um, are following Jesus now. So many that no one can even get up to the front, actually. And even uh, the religious leaders are there often now because the religious leaders follow him around trying to figure out what is this guy and what are we going to do about him? So there are many, many religious leaders that follow him around. So one day as he's teaching, surrounded by this huge crowd of people, including the religious leaders, there's some men that have a friend that they love and care about, and he's paralyzed, and they've desperately tried to get him to Jesus, but they can't. But these are uh, men that are not going to be stopped. They're pretty ingenious and inventive. So they go up to the roof, and they make a hole in the roof, and they lower their paralyzed friends down in front of Jesus. So let's begin in verse 20 and read together. When Jesus saw their faith, meaning the faith of the men and the paralyzed men, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking such things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to 
to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Now this really is shock and awe because in front of everyone, including the religious leaders, Jesus just says, uh, he's bold enough to say, friend, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus is offering this man is truly what all of us need more than physical healing, no matter what's going on with us today. What we all really need is healing from the deadly spiritual disease of sin. And that's what Jesus offers this man. Because only God can forgive sin. What he's saying to this huge crowd and the religious leaders that sit in front of him. He's saying to them, your view of God, your view of the Messiah is too small. Because all you've been wanting and expecting and praying for is a Messiah that would be an earthly king. They've been ooing and aahing over the physical healings because they think it's going to bring an earthly king They should have been amazed because the Messiah that stands before them offers them so much more. He can wipe away the darkness of their souls, which is truly what they need. By forgiving every sin, every sin that they've ever committed in their world, that's what this man can offer them. From eternity past to eternity present. C.S. Lewis says in his commentary on this passage, he said, Of course the religious leaders listening had good reason to be upset. Because unless the speaker is God himself, forgiving sin is really so preposterous as to be comic. Now think about it with me for a minute so we can kind of see where all this is going. All of us can forgive an offense ourselves, right? If you stepped on my toe this morning or someone stole my money, I have the right to say, you know, I I forgive you for that. I'm not holding that offense against you. But I can't forgive you if you've stolen someone else's money or stepped on someone else's toe. Those are offenses against God's law. Those are offenses against God's heart. And only God can forgive when his laws are broken and when his heart is wounded by sin. And yet standing there in the midst of all those people, that's exactly what Jesus did. He said, I forgive all your offenses to the paralyzed man. And the paralyzed man's healing is undeniable proof that he can do what he says he did. Because he says in the text, if, if the Son of Man, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, I tell you to get up and walk. And that's exactly what happened. He has the authority to forgive sins and the paralyzed man gets up and walks. He doesn't even make the religious leaders figure it out on his own. He just flat tells them, hey, if I can forgive sins, this guy's going to walk. Case closed. Take it or leave it. And unfortunately, many of the religious leaders and many of the people in the crowd choose to leave it, denying what they've seen with their own hand. The shock and awe of spectacular healing, forgiving sins, teaching, and offered undeniable proof that Jesus was the Messiah that God had sent to the nation of Israel and the world. But the expectations of people were so small that they were unable to see it. 
Now, if you're a regular part of Christ Chapel, you know that we started our fall campaign this week, and our memory verse uh, was John 18:37. I don't know whether you've had a chance to, read, to memorize it yet or not. It's actually on your verse sheet. John 18:37 says, "Jesus answered, "You say that I am king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, even though the religious leaders want a king they're not listening to the truth of who Jesus is Um, but fortunately there are some who are on the side of truth who are out there in that crowd who are following Jesus around and they are listening to Jesus and they are hearing um, uh, the shock and awe that points out who Jesus really is Their picture of the Messiah is not so small that it blinds them. And we're going to take a look before we finish today at the unlikely men that are on the side of truth, that are listening to him, and Jesus calls us his disciples. Um, uh, Look back at verse 1 in chapter 5 with me. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw the water's edge, at the water's edge, two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belongs to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let the nets down. When they had done so, they had caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man." For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Wouldn't you love to know about what Jesus taught that day from Simon Peter's boat before they had this uh, catch of fish? I wonder if he taught about faith and obedience because that's what we see here in Simon Peter's life. As Luke records it here, this combo fishing expedition trip is probably not the first time Jesus has encountered these men. In fact, we've already seen him heal Simon Peter's mother uh, just a few verses before this. Uh, And in John, we see the first contact that he probably had with these men. Look at uh, John 140 on your sheet. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Luke's account here is probably around the third time that these men had had contact with Jesus. And apparently, after they met him the first time, it became convinced and and convicted that this guy was different and we needed to look and pay attention here and they had begun to follow him but it was not on a full-time basis they probably came and went and found out where he was and listened to his teaching the reason we know that is because they're still fishermen they're still down at the lake in their fishing boats but the time has come for Jesus to uh, not just have occasional followers, but to gather up that unlikely group of men and use his divine authority and call them to be his disciples every single day. 
In calling a group of men to follow him as his disciples, Jesus is not doing anything counterculture here. It was common in his day for the rabbis and the teachers of the law to gather up apprentices or disciples as they call them and teach them and train them how to teach the word and how to fulfill uh, ministry responsibilities in the, dem- in the temple. But what is counterculture here is the unlikely men that Jesus picks out and calls to be his disciples. These are, men are not educated rabbis. They're not wealthy, influential temple leaders. They're not even government officials who could possibly keep Jesus out of trouble. Uh, these are just men who are on the side of truth, like we heard Jesus say um, in John 18. And they listen to him. They don't just hear him. They listen to him. Now, Simon Peter is an experienced fisherman here, and he knows that there are no fish to be caught in the daytime. He's happy for Jesus to sit in his boat and teach, but um, uh, when Jesus asks him to go out and to uh, fish, he does it out of faith and obedience to Jesus. Um, And his simple act of faith and obedience is what I think brings on this great miracle that we see here. So many fish that the boats almost sink. Both boats almost sink when they call him over. But for Peter, it's more than just a miracle of a whole bunch of fish. It's the realization that the man that sits in the boat with him is not just another prophet. He's not just the future earthly king of Israel. The man that sits in the boat with him is God himself. And he testifies to that and calls him Lord and falls at his feet. In a heartbeat, Peter gets it. Now, think of the countless people who've watched Jesus teach and perform miracles Hardly any of them have responded the way Peter did. Some of them are interested. Some of them are curious. Many of them are skeptical. But Peter's converted. Peter's converted. He's not interested, curious, or skeptical. He is converted. And his life changed forever here because of the shock and awe of Jesus' miracle opens Peter's eyes to Jesus' true identity. And Jesus goes on to call these men to uh, the greatest fishing expedition of his life. Now, what had happened here to Peter was what could have happened to everyone in the crowds that were following Jesus if their expectation of the Messiah had not been so small. Now, as unlikely as it is that Jesus would call fishermen, Luke gives us another account of someone who makes the fishermen seem like a really good choice here. Let's look as we finish up real quickly at verses 27 through 31. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and follow him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Now, Levi is a tax collector. Hopefully you talked about this in your lesson. So he's scorned by everyone in his community. Um, He's scorned by the nation of Israel because he works for the Romans who are their oppressors. And he's taking money from the people of Israel and giving it to the Romans. And so he is not a popular guy. He's alienated 
particularly from the religious community of his day. He's probably not welcome in the temple or the synagogue. But Jesus is not the religious community of the day. He's the Messiah, and his divine authority allows him to call, um, not based on tradition or legalistic interpretations, but based on the people that are on the side of truth and listen to him. Now, in the text here, if we'd read this one right after the other, you would see that Jesus had just finished blowing away the Pharisees by um, offering forgiveness to the paralytic. And so now he really rocks them out because he walks straight to Levi, the tax collector, and not only speaks to him, but calls him to be a follower. And what I love about Levi here is he just jumps up. He just says yes immediately. He leaves everything. He is like a thirsty man that hasn't had a drink of water in a long time. And that's really true. He is a dying man that needs a spiritual drink of what Jesus has to offer him. Um, and not only does Jesus leave with Levi, the tax collector, but Levi's so excited about this new relationship that he's found with Jesus, he can't contain himself. And so he throws a big party. And who does Levi know? He only knows tax collectors because they're the only people that will uh, associate with him. So he doesn't get it that this might not be appropriate in the religious community. So he throws a big party of tax collectors, and Jesus um, and his disciples come. And that Definitely freaks out the Pharisees, and they begin to complain about it here in this passage. Jesus makes the point here in verse 31 uh, where he says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus' point to the Pharisees is he doesn't need their permission to offer forgiveness um, to those who need it, and he doesn't need their permission. Uh, to hang out with those whose lives are filled with sin. It's why he came. It's why he came. Now, Luke chapter 6 goes on to talk more about the unlikely men that Jesus called as his disciples. It's on your verse sheet. You don't have to turn there. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Bartholomew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who's Levi here in this text, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. These are not religious leaders. These are unlikely men who heard the truth and listened to Jesus and saw him for who he really was. Now, Luke puts bookends on chapters 4 and 5 as we finish up here. I love this when I studied it. He starts out chapter 4 with Jesus' D-Day encounter with Satan in the wilderness. And that's how he ushers in the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to a lost world. And Luke ends chapter 5 with a parable from Jesus about this new beginning that he brings to the world. In verses 33 and 35, we don't have time to read it, but the Pharisees want to know why he's not following the ancient traditions. Why are you not doing the rituals that we have done for years and years and years? And Jesus tells them he didn't come to fit into the old ways or the old covenant. John the Baptist was the last voice of the old covenant. But Jesus... So much bigger than anything they could think of. Jesus as the Messiah was bringing 
in a completely new world order. Look at verses 36 to 38 with me. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wine skins will be ruined. New wine must be poured into the new wineskins. Jesus uses these illustrations you see in your homework. We talked about the new and the old. The illustration of patching the old garment with the new cloth. Of pouring new wine into old wineskins. To make his point that this is a completely new beginning for the world. This is a new beginning for Israel. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17 on your sheet. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. That's what Jesus' inaugural first days in ministry are about. He begins with so much shock and awe. How could anyone miss the fact that the old has gone and the new has come? Now, Jesus brings us all here today, this morning, because we have a new beginning, don't we, if we have a new life in Christ. And if that doesn't ring true to you if you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking I I don't think I have a new beginning or a new life in Christ then don't leave today without coming down and let's just talk about that about what it means to have a new beginning and a new life in Christ but if you're here today and you do like Peter um, you call Jesus Lord and you understand what he's done in your life We not only follow Jesus as our Savior if we call him Lord, but we have to follow his example too. We have to follow his example because Jesus came as the Messiah to a lost world and we still live in that lost world even if he is our Messiah. So there's some things that I think we can take away from this lesson that we can follow Jesus' example. We can follow Jesus' example to meet temptation, every temptation with the truth of God's word, doing exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness. Jesus refused to give in to Satan's offer of instant gratification. Jesus uh, stood solidly behind God's plan for his life. Solidly behind God's plan for his wife, for his life. And he used the word of God to um, keep that dependence on God. And we can follow that example and do the exact same thing. We can give up needing uh, to make our life what we want it, when we want it. And we can use the word of God to stand solidly in dependence on God. We can also follow Jesus' example by being bold in sharing the truth of who he is wherever we go. You know, Jesus didn't get a great reception at Nazareth, uh, but it didn't stop him. He knew the hometown crowd wasn't going to be happy. These were people he knew that he probably wanted them to think well of him, uh, but they didn't. But he said it anyway, didn't he? He stood up and said, I'm it. I'm the Messiah. We may not get a great reception at work or with our unbelieving neighbors when we say, do you know who Jesus is, who he is in my life? He is the Messiah, but we can't let it stop us. We need to follow his example in proclaiming the truth of Jesus is wherever we go. And finally, we can follow Jesus' great example of spending time with people who need a Savior that are so totally lost that they don't even have a clue that our life looks different from theirs. 
Our Christian friends and our church body is going to be our support and our foundation and our strength, and we all need that for accountability. But like Jesus, our mission here is not to simply surround ourselves with the righteous. Um, if we follow his example, we are going to seek out people who need a Savior and most likely don't even realize how lost they are. Look at Luke 19.10 on your verse sheet. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Every day is D-Day if we can make a difference in somebody's life by sharing the truth of the gospel with them. Every day is D-Day. If it's a day where we can make a difference in the kingdom because we tell people who Jesus are, we can make Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost our own. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. You are gracious and good God. Your graciousness is shown to us because we have your word right here. We can know everything there is to know about you. We can understand you in a way that really um, amazes us. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these women who love you. Thank you for allowing us to be together today. And I pray this in the name of your son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.